Hey everyone, welcome to Saybrook Insights, a production of Saybrook University. My name is Nathan Long, president and host of the podcast. As part of our mission to relentlessly pursue a more socially just, sustainable world, this podcast focuses on the broad range of what it means to be human. To that end, I'll be interviewing a diverse array of guests, including students and alumni engaged in the practice of positive social change, industry leaders from a cross-section of organizational types, including healthcare, higher education, for-profit, and nonprofit corporations, as well as faculty and community thought leaders who are taking the lead in advancing the health and well-being of our communities. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Horowitz, president of the Community Solution Education System, a nonprofit system of colleges and universities of which Saybrook University is an affiliate partner. A psychologist by education, a businessman through experience, and a visionary in the field of higher education, Dr. Horowitz has a unique combination of skills, passion, and confidence to bring revolutionary ideas to life. Our conversation covered a broad range of topics from the education system itself to higher education in general and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, every conversation I have had with Dr. Horowitz over these last few years opens new doors and new ideas. I hope that, like me, you'll find this conversation both enlightening and uplifting. And now, Dr. Michael Horowitz. Dr. Horowitz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much uh, for having me, Dr. Long. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the kind introduction. Absolutely, absolutely. We're thrilled to have you join us today. Uh, why don't you start with uh, telling the audience a bit about yourself, what got you into higher education, uh, the things that bring you up and get you up in the morning that excite you. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, by education, I'm a clinical psychologist. I got my PhD uh, at Northwestern University Medical School back in 1986. Uh, and there were many uh, powerful impacts uh, in my education there. One was the realization that psychology could offer so much more to the world if it was unleashed beyond the confines of a medical center. So in a, in a medical setting, and of course psychology is critical there, of course, but it struck me that there were so many other avenues of the world, our schools, our communities, uh, our court system, where psychology as a profession uh, could advance the public good uh, so much more than in that limited context. I also, uh, th there was kind of beginning work at the time in extending the work of psychology and mental health into our communities. And mm -hmm. I really was struck by how limited the old paradigm was of one patient, one practitioner, one room. Uh, and some of my work during graduate school was in what was called the emergency housing program where we had chronically mentally ill, you know, in the community trying to get them back into the workforce and, and taking a much broader view of their troubles. And so um, that, that really got me on the road to uh, 
getting excited about independent schools of professional psychology, which started in the 1960s and steered my career uh, in that direction. And also the idea that we had to take psychology to a community level, find out what communities needed and wanted rather than prescribing it from a kind of expert platform. I think over the last six years that I've known you, Dr. Horowitz, I learned something new every day. The emergency housing piece that you mentioned in your, your overview is really fascinating. How did you, you, you talked a little bit about how that bridged into you know, the work and the opportunities you saw in higher education. What was most meaningful about that ex or those sets of experiences uh, as you uh, engaged with that community? Well, again, the notion that uh, li listening uh, could take place at a broader, at a community level, rather than one person at a time, which had been uh, the paradigm. And also, uh, once you started doing programs like that emergency housing program, you, by its very nature, you learn to cooperate with so many different uh, key players. So, I mean, we, we were using converted SRO hotels as the housing. You had to coordinate with medical, psychiatric, psychological staff. You had to coordinate with jobs programs uh, in the city. Uh, you had to deal with neighbors who were concerned about bringing a program like that into their community. And so uh, it, it was a powerful lesson in what we today call in TCS radical cooperation. You know, and I'm struck that we're, we're talking in, in the middle of this pandemic and I was listening to a news story about uh, some governments are trying to create uh, kind of an arms race around who's gonna get the treatment and vaccination for COVID-19 first, whereas the world scientific community is unanimously opposed to that idea and, and want to advance as much as possible on behalf of our global community by sharing scientific experiments and results in real time. And I, I'm certainly rooting for that approach. Well, I mean, the, the, the former only has negative outcomes for millions of people, right? And I think to your point, our failure to cooperate will only lead to more suffering and, and death, frankly. I, right. I think you're absolutely 100% right. Uh, that was a, a, I read that same article this morning in the New York Times and was just really uh, profoundly affected by uh, the fact that these scientists are really pushing for that uh, collaborative approach to, to solving the problem. Yeah, I mean, that, that became uh, it's sort of a fundamental awareness as I served as president of the Chicago School of Professional Psychology that just as we were having great success by launching new psychology programs into our communities with community support and input that perhaps we could change the paradigm of higher ed by linking uh, distinct yet like-minded college communities together to create something uh, much better mm -hmm. for everybody. And uh, that led to the creation of TCS, the community solution in higher education, which as you noted, was, began in 
2009, and, and we're proud to have six outstanding institutions uh, as part of that community today. A decade of difference, as we've called it recently, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, a lot to celebrate there. And before we get into the COVID-19 discussion that I think really is framing a lot of discussions nationally, locally, regionally, you know, with respect to TCS education system, uh, you know, you, the, the system itself is unique for a number of reasons, not least of which is the fact it's a partnership model uh, rooted in the idea that, uh, you know, through cooperation and collaboration, we all do better. And by all of us doing better, that really ultimately means we're serving students in the best possible way. Uh, just maybe a few thoughts from you on the system model. What really makes this distinctive from, say, uh, uh, some of the state system models or the nonprofit uh, system models that might be out there as well? Well, I think at the moment we are truly uh, distinct. I, I hope that many will copy us because I don't think there's any harm in having multiple systems like ours. What is profoundly uh, different about ours is that it's a, it's a formally governed model uh, that where a college board votes to affiliate to our system, adopts a different governance model using a dual board structure and you know voluntarily chooses to be part of this broader system uh it has it has such great power in so many different ways so uh just as you're president of saybrook university you're part of the leadership team of tcs education system and so now uh you know as we've experienced in the last few weeks where we've been able have leadership calls of our president's council. We get the benefit of seven presidents, uh, the six colleges and universities, and myself uh, brainstorming together, uh, working with our other leaders uh, to do the best for everybody. So uh, I think it's that formal governance and commitment. Uh, TCS, like its colleges, is a nonprofit. 501c3 and we also benefit from this uh, additional designation from the IRS what's called a type 2 supporting organization so the system is designed and operated for the benefit of our affiliated institutions in higher education and so it's created this very powerful framework my observation having been in higher ed now for a good 30 years is that when you don't formalize the structures, when you just say, you know, it's a membership organization or it's a common interest organization, you, you can exchange some interesting information, but it really doesn't create the impetus for that deep radical cooperation. What, once you're all in, uh, you start to exert, I think, first of all, the power of creativity and people being in one family, in one community. And those, you know, you don't see on a, on a spreadsheet or a budget, but it's perhaps the most powerful element of our community. I, I always talk about that TED talk from Eve Moreau where he showed uh, supposedly the underdog uh, relay race team winning 
against the faster team because of how they work together, how they pass the baton. So I think that's been incredibly powerful. And then once you're in that kind of formal system, you of course start to benefit from so many straightforward uh, business pluses. I mean, we, we, all, we all agree, let's, let's get the best uh, learning management system that's available and let's agree we're gonna pick one. And so once you have six colleges picking one, you start to drive the cost down. That's one example, but you and I could probably generate 20 today where we're benefiting from scale. And we, we've agreed ahead of time, yes, we're, we're gonna come to a consensus position so we can adopt the best uh, platform, software, hardware, uh, banking relationship, whatever it is, on behalf of a community of about 10,000 employees and students, rather than you know going out one institution at a time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very good. Thank you for that. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that especially in the day and age of COVID-19, you mentioned uh, you know the President's Council. That's what we call the seven presidents and leaders and, and the uh, very talented team of direct reports that you have at the system, um, you know, what would you, or how would you describe those interactions over the last three weeks in responding to this pandemic as it's impacting or affecting our six institutions on the ground? Well, I've been so impressed uh, with your leadership and that of our other presidents. Um, I think the set, real sense, profound sense and reality of our community has been such a comfort. And I, I compare that because I have colleagues that are uh, working in singular institutions without that community and it's isolating and it's leading to uh, huge levels of anxiety and sometimes panic. And the fact that we have a group that comes together. I mean, we, we have been able to take our nearly 9,000 students and keep them humming. Uh, first of all, because of the great history, history and experience we have with distance education. But in many cases, we had ground programs where our community was able to quickly mobilize uh, to a video option. Uh, we've been able to take 100% of our employees remote. And I think it's again, having uh, a group, when we get all together in the council, we're 15 people, uh, all rowing in the same direction, sharing best practices. We have one IT leader that is, you know, collecting uh, the issues, problems nationwide. So that he in turn can mobilize, you know, his team of nearly 50, some are dispersed at the colleges. I, I think we're just so far ahead of institutions that are operating on their own. Mm -hmm. and, and I think my observation is our colleges have been able to move more rapidly over the time they've been in the system. And now it really pays off in a crisis. We're starting to see institutions close, talk about closure. Uh, scrambling to get things online in many respects, not all, but many uh, who are really struggling to figure out how to make their way through this. I guess uh, 
from your perspective, what's been the biggest takeaway uh, re regarding the impact of COVID-19 having on higher education in these first two weeks of the crisis? Well, I, I, I've seen so many institutions caught flat-footed. Ironically, uh, our CFO, uh, Mahul Patel, told me he'd had uh, lunch recently, I won't name it, with the CFO of a fairly big institution. Uh, and the, their CFO said, you know, they hadn't really seen the point of online and didn't do much in that area. It really struck me because that institution had been a, an early leader in terms of alternative uh, working adult education, uh, you know, accelerated models, night school. So I, I think what, one of our great benefits is just, it's impossible to shut your eyes to the outside world. I mean, that, I, I've really learned that, that the more we can be outwardly focused. And so when you're in our system model, uh, you know, we're looking at each other in real time. And as you said, oh, Nathan's doing a podcast and Jack is doing uh, videos from his iPhone and Matt has sent out this communication uh, to his community and Michelle is uh, adopting this policy. And so the speed uh, is fast. We share it in real time. And I see in a lot of higher ed now uh, the reluctance uh, to evolve and, and boards and leadership teams having their head in the sand. So I think it's going to be a, a, another round of shakeout where the institutions that uh, embraced innovation and in learning, uh, use of technology, uh, hybrid education are going to keep advancing. Uh, and, and those who have learned to adopt a quicker pace uh, are going to keep advancing and others uh, are going to fall away and contract. Do you see any or have any predictions for the future of these small colleges around the country? I, you know, to that point that you're making around, you know, a failure to adapt or, or a, a slowness in, in their responses uh, to how they'll survive, how, how these colleges that are kind of borderline will make it uh, going forward or not? Where do you see the impact going into the next Yeah, I, I, th I think in, in, in the end of 2020 and early 21, we will see the rate of closures increase. Uh, just this week, uh, McMurray College in Illinois, 179 years, announced this would be uh, their last term and they're gonna close. Uh, Notre Dame de Namur in the Bay Area uh, has been in the news, unclear what's gonna happen. Uh, I think they've talked about not enrolling a fall class. So this is gonna quicken, this is gonna quicken the pace. Um, the, th this was a crisis that was already underway. And I think um, higher ed had the sense that it was immune to factors that impact the rest of the world. I mean, it's not, there are gonna be many organizations, nonprofits and for-profit that close in all, in all lines of business, but higher ed is gonna see a, a quickening of consolidation and of closures. I, I, I would tend to agree with that. And I, I think to the point, I, w I believe it was the Chronicle or Inside Higher Ed had indicated 
somewhere in the realm of 100 institutions over the next decade. And I think to your point, it's probably going to be hundreds, not just in the uh, single hundred category uh, that we're going to be seeing. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting to a couple more questions for you. Uh, Saybrook, as, as many of those in our audience and yourself, of course, knows that, you know, we've been an online distance learning model for 50 years. And uh, as we kind of move forward, we're, we're always thinking of ways to be innovative in the learning space and the teaching space. You know, from your perspective as an educator, as an academic leader, uh, you know, where do you see the biggest opportunities for innovation in online learning uh, for our students uh, going into the next year, especially with this pandemic? What, what, what kinds of things could open up uh, that you see are, are really uh, possible? Yeah, and I wouldn't uh, by any means hold myself out as a pedagogical expert. I'll give you some high level thoughts. I, I, I've really benefited from participating in the uh, Saybrook mindfulness moments uh, where we have 15 minutes of meditation uh, facilitated by your faculty. So for starters, you can see when you dial into that, that Saybrook faculty have facility with technology. They also have understanding that technology for reasons beyond our control doesn't always work the way we want it to. And so you, you see that flexibility, which I think is critical for students, for faculty, for employees of the future. I, I hope that um, this is gonna put the accelerator on for all faculty you know, across higher ed to get comfortable with that basic use of these technology platforms. Again, I think the platforms with them will themselves evolve, but so many faculty I don't think at our institutions, but at others, are still uh, fearful about it, uh, don't have basic use, uh, don't use a course shell uh, to moderate their course. I, I think there's gonna be greater comfort with some of the, uh, I know we've trended toward the asynchronous model because it's, it kind of works to coordinate across time zones and so on. I'm hoping that some of the more creative use of synchronous uh, education, the way we've been doing the mindfulness meditation, uh, that we will start to learn how to have uh, interactive space and dialogue using these online platforms. As, as we noted with our President's Council, we have no choice but to facilitate uh, an interactive meeting, uh, even though it's taking place online. So that I, I would start with those basics, and I'm hoping that the talented people that work uh, for our system in instructional design and that who work at these uh, you know, software companies will increasingly give us better and better ways uh, to interact. I, I certainly, uh, I came from knowing nothing about it, and, and so some of it, when it's working well, does seem like magic, the fact that we can uh, quickly facilitate group meetings that are video that we can share information that students can record uh, programs that they can be given uh, exams to check their knowledge. Uh, all that is really good. And 
I hope that we see more and more. Well, I, I would say for someone who doesn't consider himself the, uh, you know, kind of the expert in the area, those were some really important and key takeaways for most of our faculty uh, colleagues across the country. So I appreciate the insights there. You know, as we close out the interview today, uh, Dr. Horowitz, I just would like to get some final closing thoughts from you. I mean, really great uh, insights from you uh, across the board in the higher education landscape. And as we all know, uh, what makes up higher education in our colleges and universities uh, are or is the people that uh, come in every day to learn, that teach. Uh, you know, what advice do you have uh, for students, for uh, our staff members, our faculty who might be suffering from anxiety, given all this, uh, you know, really seismic change that's happening, uh, not just nationally, but globally. Yeah, and you can't uh, discount the anxiety. I'm, I'm glad it's uh, sunny here in Chicago today, because I'll tell you, between the pandemic and endless cloudy days, uh, it really did feel uh, demoralizing. So at least the sun is, is helping us out today. You know, I would say that in this tough time, don't be deterred about continuing to study, learn, teach, and be connected. So, you know, don't go down the uh, rabbit hole of just looking at all the bad news. Keep, keep your studies and your learning up and your connectivity because we do have that to offer each other. And particularly for Saybrook and our other institutions, we have the ability to sustain our community. So don't let the pandemic stop you from advancing your education. This is gonna pass. And so this is the time to keep taking your courses, uh, to keep planning next steps. Uh, maybe even as we're learning at our nursing school, experimentation with uh, simulation for clinicals. So the, the nurses are doing some of their skills training in a virtual setup. And I think more and more is gonna be developed for healthcare and mental health. And I would say um, the world needs so many more of our graduates. Just think about Saybrook, whether it's psychology, counseling, nutrition, uh, social change agents. Uh, th these are wonderful disciplines that if anything, the pandemic is going to create a demand and need for more graduates of ours. So I think in, in the face of crisis, let, let's band together to keep our education going as strong as possible. That's my commitment. Here, here, Dr. Horowitz, you uh, have lent some really incredible insights to our audience today to uh, uh, inspire us. We really appreciate your time and thank you, sir, uh, for- Thank you, uh, thank you uh, for getting this creative podcast launching and for having me as a early guest. Well, you, you're great and your patience with my uh, early interviewing skills is, is uh, greatly appreciated. Thank you, Dr. Horowitz. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.